0: O oh, Ireland, you have woven myths around your children's heartache, and I, to ease my bitter grief, will sing a song of parting. I'll take my leaf of your rain veiled hills, your pastel towns at morning, and bid goodbye to Cave Hillside, though my heart may break with
1: longing. Ooh, I-
2: Well, Patrick's not here at the moment. Patrick had to get out. And as far as I know, even, so he's not allowed this side of Drogheda.
3: They dragged me upright, asked me which border road I wanted wanted my body dumping in. And uh, then they put a revolver into my hand, pressed my fingers over it, and I was informed, again from the back, from behind me, that I had 24 hours to get out of the war zone. And they explained to me that the war zone ex- extended from Dublin northwards. And that if I ever spoke to anybody, be it media or otherwise, that I would be forthwith shot.
4: And the two boys walked in. I knew, I, knew, I knew one of them well, the other one I knew a wee bit. And uh, he just pushed me on my knees and put a gun in the back of my neck. And he said, Because of things like that, he says you have 24 hours to get out of Northern Ireland.
5: I've been told from many quarters that uh, to keep looking over my shoulder, there's a risk that I could join the, the ranks of
6: the disappeared. Maybe we should have stayed. I mean, I'm sure that maybe people might say, why didn't you stay and, and face up to it if you had done nothing wrong? But there are so many people who have served long, long sentences in Long Kesh and another, and other prisons. You just have to think of the Birmingham Six and the Guildford Four, and that would help you to understand why we went.
7: Since the trouble started in Northern Ireland, thousands have been killed and injured. We know about the dead and the maimed, but we don't hear about the vanished and the vanished. The men and women who lie in unmarked graves, the families and individuals who were forced to leave Northern Ireland by the paramilitaries and by the security forces. Since Roman times, exile from one's native land has been used as a form of punishment. It was deemed to be one of the harshest forms of punishment. In Northern Ireland, expulsion orders are issued by the paramilitaries as a form of social control and as a gagging device.
1: The people have been ordered out of um, Northern Ireland over a number of years. You'd have um, people from Sinn Féin IRA who order people out, and from the... Protestant side would be the loyalist. UVF, UDA, they order people out of the country. One side's as bad as the other. And they'll use a lame excuse. You know, it can be just maybe even they want your house. It's a simple thing like, we want your house, that's it, you're out.
7: Nancy Gracie, who founded FATE, Families Against Intimidation
1: and Terror. Since this organisation was founded five years ago, we would know of 287. Now that would be men, women and children who uh, were ordered out of their homes for one reason or other. Sometimes it can be cause, because of uh, an argument over children. It can be a case where um, you don't attend meetings. You speak out against them. Uh, you'll have a family on your hands very shortly, whom they'll tell you exactly how it happened. People who are outspoken against them, that's just enough to get you put out. Or it can be uh, young ones who've been involved in petty crime. Some of these young people have already been to court, um, done time, come out, and then they're told, ready 48 hours to leave the country. Um, these expulsions and ordering people out of their homes has been going on for years, but when we started up in this organisation, we can only go back five years and put a figure on how many people that we would be aware of, but um, what we've been told is there's been hundreds, hundreds of people, and some of them never come back and do- are afraid still to come back even though they say there's peace here. They don't come back.
7: Although the paramilitary organisations are to the forefront in issuing expulsion orders, many of their own members have had to leave Northern Ireland. Some are on the run. Others left because of coercion and intimidation and because of their lack of faith in the forces of law and order.
0: It is an open prison for, let's say, hundreds of people down here. There's nowhere in Ireland that there isn't that they'll meet Sunday. Sunday. On the run, as we would call it, or as it's termed, we call it exile in your own
2: country. Well, Patrick's not here at the moment.
7: Alice Donegan from Jonesboro.
2: I got a phone call from his probation officer on Tuesday, the 14th of November, at about half past four. He had an hour to get out of his home. And how she found out about it was she got a phone call from Sinn Féin office in Belfast. I got Patrick out within the hour, but I wasn't satisfied then because nobody got in contact with me directly from Sinn Féin, so I took him back home on the Thursday. So I got in contact with Sinn Féin myself, and they got in contact with me on the Monday and told me, yes, Patrick had to get out. And as far as I know, even, so he's not allowed this side of Drogheda. Patrick was 15 years of age, but when he was 14, it happened on the 28th of January, eight masked men came into the house. Patrick was here with a first cousin of his and a friend. They put the three boys lying on the floor, tied their hands behind their back, covered their heads and tucked them away in a van. That was at about half seven at night time. I got in contact with the police and about a quarter of nine, Daisy Hill phoned the police to say that the ambulance was gone to collect the boys in some road that were outside the roads. Their cousin, Patrick's first cousin, wasn't detained in hospital. Patrick was detained overnight and the other boy was detained for several weeks because he got the worst doing of the whole lot. Though they made Patrick and his first cousin stand and watch as they came down with sledgehammers on the older boys' legs. Now, that happened on the 28th of January. Patrick had been in trouble since. He was opposed to appearing in court on the 10th of December and he was willing to appear, had a good idea he was going to be sent away, most likely to a training school. He was willing to do that, but they wouldn't even give him the chance to go to court. Now, at the moment, he's put out of his home by them, there's a bench warrant out for his arrest from the courts, even though the courts know he was put out they were still issued a bench warrant for his arrest. So he's wanted, to, he can't come back because it's champagne or the IRA, whatever you like to call him. and when he comes back, if it was a thing he was allowed back, he's going to be arrested by the police anyway. Well, I know myself what Patrick did. He has been doing it for over 12 months. He has been joint riding. I won't deny that, and neither would he. But as I said all along, and he agrees with me now, it's up to the courts to deal with that. Like, it, it's not just once or twice he was involved in riding, He was involved in it a couple of times. I went to barracks with him. He was arrested. He robbed over joy riding. I went to the barracks with him. We were in a barracks a couple of hours. But he knew what he'd he he done was wrong. He knew when he was doing it, it was wrong. But he just thought it was great excitement. But that's where his great excitement ended him now. He's not the only young lad round here that does it. Because it was young lads with him doing it. He never done it on his own. And the same young lads does with him are still walking the roads, whereas he can't walk his own roads now. I've approached the SDLP, I've, well Father Fall has been approached on my behalf, though I was speaking to him once, he's doing everything he can, he presented President Clinton with a letter telling him about when President Clinton was here in the north. Um, I've even approached Sinn Féin, you see, but they let me take him home for Christmas to see how long he's put out. And they just hadn't got the decency to tell me. Oh, they'd hope me they'd get back to me. But no, they never got back to me. At the moment, I'm dealing with the SDLP and I'm hoping and praying that they can do something for me. But I don't honestly know.
7: Alice Donegan lives in hope that one day soon her son can return home. For the families of the murdered... They disappeared. There is no such hope. Seamus McKendree.
5: I met my wife, in, my wife Helen, in 1972. Uh, she had just been taken into a children's home. Uh, she obviously went on to tell me about her mother being disappeared by the provisionals in December 1972. Uh, Helen had nine brothers and sisters and... Her father had only died, I think it was eight months previous. She went to the ball of actually hiding her brothers and sisters under the bed at nights and in cupboards. And this, this lasted for six weeks before the social services and the police realised they were on their own. And they were all taken into children's homes, etc. So uh, I determined there and then that I would do everything in my power to find out what happened to her mother. Uh, that has always been very, very difficult. Uh, there was a risk that I could join the, the ranks of the disappeared. But when the ceasefire came about, it gave us a bit of confidence, and we decided to go public. Well, so, some, of, some of the perpetrators were known as local professionals and they actually declared themselves to be members of the provisional IRA uh, when they took her. I had went to Sinn Féin before, the, before they implemented the ceasefire. I was aware of the fact that it was coming about and I actually asked them. I told them I wouldn't do anything public, so it in case I would rock the boat, and maybe they uh, they promised me I'd inquiry. They told me they would find out what exactly happened. And I went back. I think it was three months into the ceasefire, and asked, right, what have you found out? And they denied they'd ever seen me in their lives before. When we approached the provisional,s just after the ceasefire, we said to them that we weren't interested in prosecutions. We said we simply wanted. Gene's body returned for a Christian burial. Because if they realised the anguish and the hurt of not knowing, believe me, they would they would see living up in the morning and tell us what happened. But we honestly believe that, well, in the present climate of, well, a supposed peace anyway, that uh, they were genuine and when they told us, yes, OK, would we'll go now and we'll have an inquiry, they returned about a month later to inform us that The perpetrators of all these disappearances were now dead themselves, which was uh, one hell of a coincidence. Uh, When we informed him that we knew the identity of quite a few of the perpetrators and they were still walking about Belfast, he decided then he would go and have another inquiry. And to date, all we've got from them is that they would be willing to assume blame, but not in all cases, whatever that means. I've been told from many quarters that uh, keep looking over my shoulder. I can see <clears throat> my, my reasons for conducting this campaign are purely humane. In, initially it was my mother-in-law, Jean McConville, I was trying to find out exactly what happened to her. Uh, since then I've been approached by many families and to date there are 14 names. There are 14 known disappearances by paramilitaries. Uh, we suspect that loyalist paramilitaries were also involved in disappearances and in fact um quite a few senior loyalists have privately said that at least as yet i've had a couple of vague conversations with people from the loyalist camp if i can use that term and they have said that they would like me to find out where their brother went what happened to their brother but never come back i don't know whether it was through fear or what exactly we we felt that Simply as a husband and wife team, it was hard to capture the media attention, maybe, and things like that. So when we did hear about the other cases of disappearances, we contacted those families and asked would they consider joining the group. So on June 26th, ninety-five, we formed the families that the disappeared. And essentially to raise public awareness, you know, that this is good old Holy Ireland and yet atrocities such as this did happen, you know. Since since then we have been contacted by various groups around the world who campaign to have disappeared people return to their families. The mothers of the Plaza de Mayo and Buenos Aires, for instance. And so there are supposed to be thirty three thousand, I believe it is, disappeared in Argentina during the seventies. In Ireland we're talking about fourteen people, but the the numbers aren't relevant. If it's one case of disappearance it's one too many.
4: I was brought up in Belfast, Shankill Road. Um, where my wife Agnes was brought up in Shankill Road.
7: Charlie Kincaid from Antrim.
4: I um, was away in the army for three years. Uh, came back and met Agnes and uh, got married and ended uh, up and moved to a new house in Antrim. We were in Antrim for about 16 to 18 years. Um, the state where I lived in was Ten Parks North and there was about over 100 children in it and did nothing had uh, nowhere to go, nowhere to play. The youth club was, run, was mostly Roman Catholics. 90% of them were Roman Catholic children, and the other 10% was Protestant. I was brought up, as I said, in uh, Belfast Shankler Road. I was in the Orange Order since about nine years of age, um, right up till I was 40 odds. Um But when I started the youth club up, um, because I was wor- working with Roman Catholic children, I uh, didn't shoot. orange order so i had to leave i left the orange order because working roman catholics and orange order didn't actually go together so i just left them for my own interest because i was more interested in helping the children in the state Um, michelle she's the oldest daughter and michelle once she came 16 to me and to Agnes, and whoever she went out with, whatever boy she went out with, that was up to her. We can't go and say, go with him or go with him. So if she went with a Roman Catholic or a Pakistani or an Indian, it didn't matter to us. That was her life. But she met Gerald, and uh, Gerald was a, a nice fellow. He was uh, very good to Michelle. Michelle had a child from a previous relation, Joshua, and Gerald took him under his wing. And Joshua started calling Gerald daddy, and they went everywhere together. Um uh, the two of them were were definitely in love and uh Gerard moved in with him share and Louis flat she had and everything's going well. Jared worked twenty four hours a day, he was a plumber, so he decided to take up a taxi. and uh they wanted to build a house together and have a good life together and he wanted more money. I think his fa- his family and I myself even warned me says at the present time taxiing was a bad job because it was a lot of taxi drivers getting hassled and shot at and things.
7: Charlie Kincaid had reason to fear for Gerald Brady's safety. The Catholic taxi driver was shot dead by the UVF on Father's Day, 1994.
4: My own personal belief is Gerald was set up. Um, Gerald was taxiing as, as I said, that night, and his body was found, and his taxi was found in Carragher, Fergus, which is several miles from Antrim. I don't know, maybe seven miles or eight miles, uh, 13 miles even but Gerald would never take anybody he didn't know on a long distance run I mean I think most of the taxi drivers maybe maybe were the same but the killers who killed Gerald there's no doubt in my mind he knew them or he knew one of them um, I was very very angry because to me, he was just a ordinary boy who was in love with my daughter, and all he wanted in life was to look after her and the children. I was very, very angry. I believe that I hit, I hit out at the paramilities, and I believe that I tramped on some top these feet, as I would say, and they didn't like it. I wrote statements out for Michelle, um, hitting out at it, and she hit out at them themselves. And I believe that because of this, they weren't too happy of what I said about them, what Michelle said about them. Also I believe it because um of my connections as a, as a a Protestant, uh, what I knew things that I shouldn't know. And I think that is another reason why um where I am today. Um I took, went back to Michelle's we got Michelle the house and uh she wouldn't move in of course and one day I said I've got my check in Michelle's house, make sure nobody's broke in or any burglary. So I was up Opened the door, I was in it about two minutes or a lot of seconds, and the two boys walked in. I knew, I knew, I knew one of them well, the one I knew a wee bit, and uh, he just pushed me on my knees and put the gun in the back of my neck. And what their words was, says uh, his word was, Charlie, you are, have been a lawyer in the past. And what he meant by that, um the time of the Agreement and things like that, there, I would go out and protest against it. You know, nothing or nothing sinister or nothing paramount. They would go out and protest as a... I didn't believe in the Irish Agreement at the time. As, you know what I mean? Um, but he said, because of things like that, he says, you have 24 hours to get out of Northern Ireland. So, and I, I wasn't afraid. I just stood on my knees and said to myself, well, they're going to kill me, that's it. But when he said this here, I sort of had a sigh of relief and him just, just walked out. To leave Northern Ireland and leave friends behind it was, has been very, very hard. For my young son, Charles, he's 15 now, he has no friends here. Um, he, he went to school here and uh, he got into trouble, which he's never been in before, because I think that was his way of saying, I want to go home by getting into trouble. Michelle is a very mixed-up young girl. She never got any counselling uh, when Gerald was murder, murdered. Um, she tries to deal with it her own way, but the way she's trying to deal with it is wrong. It's bad. Um, you know, I can't say what she. You know, she's not the same girl she was. I mean, um, she she drinks a lot now, and she cries every day, every night. She cries. She still cries, you know, and she still talks about Gerald. The children talk about Gerald the same. as daddy's in heaven. I don't know what what way Michelle's going to end up, or what what where she's going to end up. Um, I've tried to help her the best. We've, for two years nearly we've had her and look after the children but we can't seem to get through. I mean she, she blocks it all out and does her own thing and She and says this is my way of forgetting but she never forgets because no matter what night or day she, I mean, she cries and she still says why, why I can't say why, I don't know.
5: The Sinn Féin president, Gerry Adams, flew back into Dublin today, straight into a protest by the Families Against Intimidation and Terror group at Dublin Airport. He was confronted by angry people who have either suffered themselves or their families have suffered at the hands of the IRA. Mr Adams first faced Morris Healy, now living in Cork, who says that he was kidnapped and tortured by the IRA.
3: Did you tell them about the night you tortured me? Did you tell them about the mothers and fathers who lost their children up on the bloody north? Did you
0: tell them about all you people? Get them home, Mr. King! You have
3: no right date! You're a killing bastard! You're a killing bastard! Yes, on um, Saturday, August the 31st, 1985... I was taken prisoner um, by the provisional IRA and um, I was forced to lie in the back of a car, hooded, and I was driven to what they euphemistically describe as an interrogation centre, which I have good reason to believe was located in North County Louth in the Cooley Peninsula area. Um, There I was stripped. Um, made to lay on the floor. Um, there was allegations. Uh, lay on the floor, that his face downwards. Uh, a rather portly gentleman sat on my, small on my back, while uh, one of his comrades stood on my outstretched fingers, his hobnail boots. All this time I was hooded, you'll appreciate, and uh, they fired questions at me. The allegations centered around the fact that I was a suspected member of um, British intelligence, that I was supplying information to the British, and that I was a traitor to Irish republicanism. This I vehemently denied, and the more I protested my innocence, uh, the more they brutalized me. After some time, of uh, this gentleman jumping up and down on the small of my back. He grabbed me by the testicles and forcibly tried to emasculate me. At this stage I lost consciousness. Then they dragged me across the floor still hooded, made me kneel up against a wall with my hands high up behind my back. And uh, they took it in turns. I said there, there was at least eight, ten of them. They worked in relays over a period of some hours. And they put their hands from the back round, placed one hand over my mouth, the other. With the other hand, I pinched my nostrils from outside the masters with me, and fired more questions at me. And I still protested my innocence and just as I would be losing consciousness and dropping to the floor, they would punch me on whichever side of my head, whichever way I fell. Um, they told me that it was only a matter of time till they took me out to shoot me, so it would be in my own interest to confess there and then. Um, this went on, as I say, right through the night. And uh, eventually, at which point I should and tired. I was hoping that they would kill me there and then, I just couldn't take any more of it. They dragged me upright, asked me which border road I wanted, I wanted my body dumping in, and uh, then they put a revolver into my hand, pressed my fingers over it. I can still feel the coldness of death that crept over me when I felt it. Uh, they put the ammunition in my other hand and guided my hand to load it. Then they lifted the hood and stuck the barrel of the gun down my throat. They then gave me one alternative. This would be in the early hours of Sunday morning. They said if I took that gun the following day on Monday morning and murdered a named member of the UDR in URI, they would consider that quid pro quo. Otherwise, I was going to be shot. I agreed to their terms. And then they laughed, they removed the gun, and I said, there was no way out for me. They were going to kill me. And they asked me if I had any last request. I asked them if I could have a priest. And that said there's no priest for you. There's only one fucking place you're going to finish up, and that's hell. They then informed me that they were going to shoot me forthwith. They had to hold me upright. I wasn't in a position to stand. I prayed that they would kill me with the one shot rather than injure me. And then a shot was discharged in close proximity to me. They laughed about it, and then they pushed me into a chair. And I was informed, again from the back, from behind me, that they had mixed news for me, good news and bad. The good news was that they hadn't sufficient evidence to execute me, and that was their word. I don't use the word murder. The bad news was that I had 24 hours to get out of the war zone and they explained to me that the war zone ex- extended from Dublin northwards and that if I ever spoke to anybody be it media or otherwise that I would be forthwith shot um, I arranged I arranged to some friends of mine to hire a van for me and the following day I was down south with a few worldly possessions I was able to gather together. I came back to my native Cork and um, found a house in which I slept more or less rough for a number of months and uh, try to gather the pieces together as best I could. Uh, I was always conscious of the fact that I wasn't living a true life, that this threat was like the sword of Damocles. It was always there. And I was sat there one night reading the paper, looking at the television. I saw the Berlin Wall crumbling, I saw the Middle East hostages being released. And I looked at myself and I questioned myself. I said, what are you? You're a man in a small island, an Irish man, a man in a population of 5 million people, and you don't have freedom. You don't have freedom to express yourself. Why should you be living under the threat of a gun? You've done nothing wrong to anybody.
7: Morris Healy tried to get the IRA to lift the death threat, but to no avail. Eventually, he decided to approach the media, and he achieved results.
3: I got a visit here in Cork one night from three members of the Belfast command of the Provisional IRA, in which they admitted to me personally full responsibility. They further um, stated that I was a totally innocent man, it was just mistaken identity, and that, that they were down here to tender me a personal apology, providing I kept quiet. I refused this personal apology and so much that a lot of people had come and stood beside me both north and south. And I couldn't afford to let them down. And eventually, uh, sometime later, um, in the uh, Republican news of May 1991, they issued a statement in which they categorically stated that they were lifting the debt threat and my freedom of movement and that Morris Healy was totally innocent of the allegations that had been made against him in the torture chamber in 1985.
7: While Morris Healy can go back to the north, hundreds of people can't. They're on the run, wanted by the security forces. Connor and Anne McKay, not their real names, left Belfast in the dead of night 15 years ago.
0: Basically, the reason why I came south was uh, was super gross. had given evidence that I was involved in different things as such to the police and I was arrested on his strength of his word. There was about 25, 30 of us arrested. A typical thing of interrogation centres is when they bring people in, is what they try to do, they try to get somebody else to break as such as I would call it and that's by offering inducements to them. You know, when I was in there I was offered inducements to give information as such. Um, But I didn't go along with them. And then the the nail in the coffin really was that when I was out in that few weeks, the police came to the house looking for the wife. And basically what that was, was to bring her in, try and charge her, and then put pressure on me to try and give information. But the wife wasn't in the house at the time. So... uh, we came together that night, the, fam- the family and a few other people, and we sat down and discussed it and worked it out. We actually worked it. What, we, what we reckon was, was going to happen was that they were going to try and put pressure on me to turn informer. So they were. And if not, they were going to put me away and maybe put the wife away as well. So we're in a situation that, with no choice really. We just had no choice. It was either go to jail on an informer or come south of the border. So we came south of the border.
6: That night of our family discussion, my husband left in the dark of the night. He came across the border. His friend drove him across the border. And early the next morning, I came. Um, A member of my family drove me across the border. We met in O'Connell Street, I had never been in Dublin before. And O'Connell Street, it's a huge street when you've never been there before. It was a Saturday morning and all the people just, everybody seemed to know where they were going. I remember quite clearly standing, holding hands and thinking, this is what a refugee feels like. We only had the clothes on our back. I think if we had £20 between us, we were lucky and we didn't know where we were going, who was going to look after us, or where we were going to sleep. We did have our own home in Belfast, but when we walked out that night, we literally left the, the dishes in the kitchen sink. We always thought we were only here for a short while. We always believed that something was going to happen, that we'd be home again. We never, ever dreamed that we'd be here this long. It's 15 years since we've been home, and our family... We've tried our best to build our own family life, but really our family network has, has gone, because weddings... You used to get invitations to weddings because people remembered you in the first few years. But as years go on, and everybody has their own life and lives their own life, you're a forgotten identity, really. Um, weddings, christenings... Even funerals, you just can't make. Um, my own father died before before the ceasefire, and we were at a funeral, like people expect you to be at a funeral, so therefore they're not the most easiest places to go to first. So I couldn't go. I, I couldn't go to see my father buried because the British justice system wouldn't allow me to be there. I've never done anything wrong. I never committed any crime. But I'm still a victim of the British justice system and a victim of the troubles.
0: When I came across I thought this was grand. I always believed that this was part of free iron, as we were always brought up to believe. But it, it seemed it was a different story when we actually got here. Because what actually happened was very special branch started to take a great interest in me. Actually when the force came down here they came in to visit me and how do we chat as they say they called to the house. And they uh, wrapped the door and introduced themselves. And I asked them what they wanted. They said they wanted to talk to me. And then when the conversation came around, he said, you can either do it here or do it down the station. So he says, may as well do it here in the warm of the house. So my man came in, let me know what the what that they knew about me and that they'd be watching me to an extent and to behave myself. What actually happens, what they do do down here, is they pass your house... Two or three times a day, have a look in, see who was visiting you, see what cars were there. And then they'd note down any people that were visiting you and their car numbers. And from down here, they would actually go to those people's houses. And there's a couple of friends of mine that went to, not once, but two or three times, and actually went down and told them that I was a Republican and as such it was bad news and they shouldn't really have anything to do with me. And they, that's when you find out who people, when people are your friends. Busy in the north, You accept that the police and the army, because you would naturally see them as your enemy, because they are the forces of British justice, and you expect them to uh, come and harass you and give you a hard time because of who you are, where you're from, or you're Catholic or Republican Catholic in in the north. But down here, you don't expect that, especially from people that you believe are the the same as you. Like the Irish Special Branch basically give me more. Hustle and harassment in a sense, not directly but indirectly uh, than what the British did
6: as we got settled and bought our own home and made friends, you know people everybody else used to always go home for the weekend or they'd go visiting their mommy on a Sunday. We could never do that, and after a while, and maybe you know a few bank holidays, people people used to wonder you could see it in their faces, you know, why. Why don't you go home? Or are you not going home? Or you know, we used to make excuses that would fall night with your mammy, or if somebody had gone, or you know, made a ride. But after a couple of years, you can only make so many excuses. And I remember one bank holiday in particular, we actually pretended to go home. We went off for a weekend, and instead of telling people that we'd gone to Galway, we actually told people that we had gone home to Belfast to try and cover up, to try and make it it seem real. I see myself as living in an open free jail. Even people talk about prisoners and and everybody being released because of of the ceasefire and because there's no violence. I agree with that, They, they should be. But I think myself and so many, many others living in the 26 counties, we're prisoners too. We're prisoners because we can't go home.
0: Everybody wants to get home. Everybody wants to see a solution to this here and a finish. And as I say there's hundreds of people and I wouldn't be exaggerated down here on the run as we call it they want to get home they want to feel that the situation's going to solve itself that the British are actually going to sit down and make the union sit down and everybody sit down sit down round the table and sort this problem out I say that people
1: should come home people should come home and highlight it Go to a newspaper or go to a TV and say, I've been out of the country X number of years. Now I'm back and I'm staying back. I'm not going nowhere. We've had enough. We haven't been bombing or maiming or murdering or destroying for 25 years. These people have been doing it and they're still living here. So why are we put out? They shouldn't be going anywhere at all because nobody has the God-given right to be judge and jury on anybody, only a court of law. Um, I spoke out against them on the July of 1990 and uh, that, uh, my son was shot in the legs by them with uh, the Sinn Féin IRA <clears throat> because he had an argument with one of their members. Now, I knew it happened because I was on the minibus the night that the incident happened but I wasn't prepared to sit back and stay quiet. I suppose they would have preferred I did but I wasn't prepared to do so because if somebody's if, you, if a person in your family does something wrong, it's up to the law to deal with them, not uh, these um, thugs. So what i done was I went to a local newspaper and I went to the television and I voiced my disgust. And my basic one of my basic human rights, freedom of speech. Then I got together with a lot of friends, told them what I had planned to do. I was going to keep being outspoken against them. And uh, I had a lot of intimidation. An awful lot of it. Some of it was pretty scary stuff. But uh, I held on. I I had good friends with me, good friends around me. Held on and just kept fighting back. But then um, what they said was, the paramilitary says, she'll not last three months, she'll not last six months. Well, five years down the road, we're still here. I thought my life was in danger. I didn't think. I knew. I knew the chance I took. I knew... um, uh, it was a risky business. I was worried for the sake of my family. I suppose, you see, with all the years they got away with doing what they're doing on their own people, they never thought, I suppose in a million years, that one of, as they would call you, their own, being a Catholic, would ever speak out against them. Um, we did it, I done it. Started the organization and we've been pretty, su- pretty successful. We've helped a lot of people. Well, we actually spoke to the Mitchell. Went and spoke to the Mitchell Commission, and um, we got an invitation from them to go and visit. And I actually put to them that we intend highlighting um, these people who are living uh, the plight of these people who are living in exile to get them back home again. And uh, we'd appreciate any help that they could give us. You can't have paramilitaries. Um, you can't uh, have them standing up and saying, "We want remission. We want this. We want that." They've got to be point as point-blank, well, what do you intend giving back? What do you give back to the community? You've given nothing. Absolutely nothing. Since the ceasefire, there have been 197 people beaten by Sinn Féin IRA. There have been 89 people by the loyalists. There are almost 300 people living in an exile out of this country. So what are you what have you give back to the people? You've given nothing. What we're saying is decommissioning yes. Get the guns off the streets. Get them off the streets completely. Why do you need guns when you're still trying to talk when you still say you're talking peace?
6: It was The Vanished and The
0: Banished, compiled and introduced by Francis Shanahan. Sound supervision was by Aidan Butler. The programme was produced by Colin Morrison.